Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. You know, as food curious readers find us, I think what they see is a publication that helps you understand the news through the lens of food, which is a pretty good way for people to receive complex stories about our political structures and our economic structures. We've all got to eat. That commonality allows food and how it is manufactured, distributed, prepared, and consumed to be an excellent lens through which a journalist can view almost any story. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Kate Cox is the editor of The Counter, a nonprofit newsroom covering the politics, business, and culture of food and agriculture. Kate is here to talk about The Counter's unique mission. Kate, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell me a little bit about yourself. You're a journalist. You know, how did, what got you interested into journalism? How did you end up at The Counter? Oh, let's see. I'll give you the uh, non-traditional trajectory version, which is, I think, less less of a relevant term than it was when I entered the field about six or seven years ago. My father was a newspaper journalist. My whole childhood, he worked for one newspaper, the Denver Post, and moved through various roles there from you know desk reporter to features writer to editor of the editorial page. So I did grow up with major Metro Daily newsprint kind of in my DNA. And because it was my dad's profession, I did everything I could not to do it. So did other things for 20 plus years. And in my late 30s, went back to school to get my bachelor's, which I didn't have. And right after that, went to Columbia Journalism School just before I turned 40. So it was kind of a late stage career decision, but I had been freelance writing at that point for a long time. And I felt like given that we were in the kind of throes of the global recession, that I probably needed a framework in in which to enter the field. And so went to Columbia J School, and this was the job that I took out of J School. I took it in large part because the publisher, Jeffrey Kate was of note. He was known for publishing a rather kind of cultish, not the publication itself, but the fandom cultish magazine in the early aughts called Lingua Franca, which looked at the inner workings of higher ed. And he had a similar ambition for looking at the inner workings of the food system through the lens of people who were doing that work on the entrepreneurial side. I had been covering health policy and specifically through the lens of the American age boom. So was doing a lot of end of life reporting on how families cope with dying in this country, especially dying in the middle class. And so health policy is a sort of natural transition into food policy. I've, I've long said that aside from the healthcare system, the food system is the only one we don't get to totally opt out of. We have to deal with it. And, you know, in in terms of the health system, it might be that you have to deal with it when when you've got a severe injury or need a doctor's appointment. But we have to interact with the food system every day, all day in order to feed ourselves. So to me, there were a lot of parallels and it was sort of a natural transition into writing about the food system and the economics and the politics behind that. So what makes the counter different from other food focused? There are all types of magazines that focus on 
on food preparation and, and you know there are foodies out there they're also really kind of more technical you know food industry type things what what makes you different i think we sit right in the middle i mean i often say we do journalism first and food media is definitely something of an identity sector in the industry but when we entered the field or you know launched the magazine 5 years ago it was a kind of different landscape food media was really siloed between the gustatory print driven pictorial driven you know food and wine bon appetit saveur gourmet and the more kind of you know sort of businessy trade publications that were focused on helping you make money better and faster in whatever part of the sector you were in you know my background was news and journalism and so to me they were stories that used food as the lens to cover the kind of political dynamics behind our plates and the economic dynamics behind our plates and so we were different at the time in that mainstream media and the general news outlets hadn't quite yet figured out how well food stories do for them beyond the dining and the culinary side of it and as we progressed and started to put out daily news because there wasn't a daily news focused food site at the time except for politico's morning ag which was devoted to the capitol hill lobby as a tool when we first started to do that we really were sort of different we were covering you know without euphemism without flair the basics of you know parts of the poultry industry or the aspects of the supply chain that we don't have to see all the time so we were fundamentally different as things have progressed over the last 5 or 6 years the food stories i mean i've i've long said that food stories of all kinds kind of keep mainstream news readers on the page because we have to care if there's something in our macaroni we need to know about or we have to care if some part of the supply chain isn't functioning well and we're going to be paying more for milk. So we have a whole lot more competition than we did before, though there are still not beat-centered channels necessarily on most of the major news outlets. There may be a food columnist or a food business reporter, but there's not yet you know a beat dedicated just to that so we still have that part of the niche pretty well carved out but it's a busier space than ever and you know as food curious readers find us i think what they see is a publication that helps you understand the news through the lens of food which is a pretty good way for people to receive complex stories about our political structures and our economic structures. I like that you say sort of from the beginning that you and the and, and the counter that you're a journalist and you're going at this from a, from a journalist approach. You know, I know several different types of reporters who cover the food industry some who were writing about sustainability while others, you know, I think I mentioned before we we went along one of our producers used to work for the Oh, she's going to hit me. Oh, the is it the food or the food chemical news which mm. is a trade or is an industry rag for for lack of a better mm -hmm. word. I'm yeah. going to hear I'm going to hear about that comment. <laughs> Anywho, the point I'm trying to make is I mean there does seem to be an area, a wide area that people should be interested in because of how it impacts our lives. Tell me your favorite type of story that the counter does. Oh, that's a good question. I love stories with no easy villains. 
which are actually most food stories, truth, truth be told, unless you're an activist or writing editorial. I think there were a lot of, so I'll give you a really kind of somewhat obscure example from our archive, but it gives, it's a good, a good example of this. There is a disease that affects range animals called brucellosis. It's kind of rare, but it's a major killer. And it can be transmitted from animal to animal. I'm totally going to screw up the science on this, but bear with me for a second. Rangeland is a precious resource here in this country, <laughs> hugely expensive, and ownership of it is, you know, one of our biggest issues. But out in Montana, sort of on the edge of Yellowstone National Park, there's a community of ranchers who are dealing with animals that wander off the land in the national park and into their rangelands and threaten their cattle with brucellosis. And it's a pretty serious problem. And the challenge with that story, of course, is that we're talking about two competing ecosystems, both of which have value. Farmers have, ranchers have a need to make money on their product and to protect their product, which is the cattle. And conservationists, of course, care about what's happening to free roaming animals who may wander out of the park and get into cattle range. And that's an excellent example to me of a story that doesn't have an easy villain where the reader can come away and say, gosh, I just don't know where I land on this. And those are hugely rich in terms of narrative potential, but also it gets you thinking about how intertwined everything is, that one system depends entirely on the other system, both to be independent and to function, and at the same time can be hugely destructive. So, you know, I think stories like that, where we've got maybe a conservation issue on one side and a, a livelihood issue on the other or a land protection issue on the other are just are just my absolute favorite kinds. I think they're the most fascinating stories to report. And as a reader, they're the ones that I most enjoy diving into because I wanna come away feeling some ambivalence, you know, some uncertainty. <laughs> you don't like your, your mysteries neatly wrapped up at the end. You know, it's interesting. As those words came out of my mouth, I realized <laughs> that that there are plenty of people in the world who do want to end a story and know exactly how they feel and know exactly what to do about it. But I guess, you know, as a reader, as a general, you know, consumer of media, I always want to think about it for a while after I finish a story. And those are the kind of stories that stay with you. Okay. Your ideal magazine would not be entitled meh. <laughs> yeah, or here's an answer to your problem, or click here click to take here. action. Yeah, yeah, or those Huffington Post type questions where, like, you know, what is killing you in your hamburger? Right, you know, salad, like the hidden crisis, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. What are some of the big news stories, food related stories that Americans are just not aware of? Oh boy! Um, <laughs> Have you picked up an issue of the the, the counter lately? <laughs> It's, let me think. Yeah, I was just going to say everything we cover. Well, let me talk about one that's hugely timely. Some Americans may realize that Congress has recently decided to set aside some of the relief funds that are available to begin to offer some sort of restitution to Black farmers who have been not just marginalized, but who's who've lost land and lost equity in their property and lost farm operations over the course of the last hundred years or so because of USDA's racist loan policies, among other things. 
What's really interesting about that story, aside from the fact that this may be the first meaningful action with money behind it, real money behind it, $4 billion behind it, that Congress has taken, it is the most meaningful action. The thing is that eviction moratoriums on Black farmers who are in debt, and there are many, are up in June. And I think one of the most interesting and sort of timely and pressing stories of the moment is that for people who are interested in what's going to happen for Black farmers, that timeline, that window is incredibly short. I mean, it's what, April 15th today. Those moratoriums, I think, are up at the end of June. And that means not only does Congress have to figure out how they're going to appropriate that $4 billion, but then USDA has to move its slow-moving mechanisms pretty fast to get relief to farmers who are facing eviction. They may figure out how to extend those moratoriums, which would be a good first step. But that's a food story on about a hundred levels that I don't think the public, the general public may hear too much about, although that money and that relief fund did get quite a bit of general news coverage. You know, one of the things I like about the type of journalism that you're doing, when you put something in an umbrella, like food, you know, the first impression is that that's somehow going to limit you. But because you're a journalist and you're approaching it journalistically, that is only that is only like a like a dome over you and the and the stories that you can write. You just ex- described a you know an environmental story about you know animals on on you know parklands. You you just talked about an economic and social justice story and a governmental story that you're also doing. So do you feel that at all bound by, by food? Do you see that as a limit? I don't. I don't. Um, and it could be because I love systems and I love systems reporting. And I I like getting into a story that seems straightforward. And then three weeks later, still trying to dig through public records requests to make sure I totally understand what the story even is. So from a, a journalism perspective, it's endlessly fascinating. And the beat is somewhat bottomless. In the beginning, though, because we were a media startup and trying to build a brand, we had a sort of central question, which was, is this a force shaping how and what America eats? And that would be the question that we would ask ourselves about every story and pitch. But I remember talking to somebody at one point a couple of years ago while the the Supreme Court was dealing with the case about the Colorado baker who had refused to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. And the person asked me, how's that a food story? And I was like, <laughs> how is food. that not a food story? You know, it's a central food item that, that is like, you know, one of the most symbolic aspects of, you know, of a, of a wedding ceremony for all couples and or for, for many couples. And in, in, and in this case, it was boiled down not to just whether the, the baker would be able to bake the cake. Um, or not based on his or her, you know, feelings about the social institution of gay marriage. But it ended up being the precedent decision ended up having to do with another food story from the mid 60s. I can't remember the name of it. But basically, whether you were going to consider a recipe, a work of art, and thereby allow it to be protected um, and to be protected from having to, you know, to, to having to kowtow to some customer's preference. And it, to me, it was just like, this is, you know, everything's a food story. 
everything is a food story or somehow connected to the food system in some way. Now, sometimes the connections are a little more tangential or a little bit blurrier and we have to firm them up for the reader, but we can make a case that almost anything will intersect with the food system in some way. That's wonderful. I love that. I love that type of approach where the subject, the thing that you're really writing about is just a thread that runs into all aspects of your life. And so every story that you write just kind of builds on top of that and helps to sort of expand people's understanding of the effect of food in people's lives. I mean, do you ever get in a situation where you're like, oh my God, I wish I could write this story. Where's the food angle? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just thinking the other day, I've been, I've been covering food and agriculture and nothing but for the last six or so years. And I realize that when I leave the laptop at the end of the day and try to have a life, everything I think about is colored in some way by what I know. So, you know, for instance, I was yesterday editing a story that somehow implicated the butter I had in my fridge. And when I opened it up at lunch, I thought, oh God, now I have to deal with you and all that you mean butter in my, you know, dairy drawer. But I often think about political stories, because I do love politics, you can see evidence of that in my, you know, editorial choices for the magazine, I'll often look for a food angle. And sometimes it's forced, you know, it's not a food story just because it happened in a restaurant, necessarily, unless there's some big national implications that we can draw from it. But Gosh, yeah, I think there are probably stories I'd love to cover. And I might be looking for the food angle, or maybe I'm just thinking, gee, maybe I can find time to freelance this. I don't know. I don't think you ever stop if, you know, if it's really in the blood, I'm not sure you ever stop thinking in story or looking for those connections. Yeah. Tell me about your writing process, your writing and reporting process. Well, I don't do too much of it these days, sadly, although occasionally I have to write a letter from the editor or something. But in terms of our reporting and editing process on staff, it's pretty intensive and also somewhat informal. That's in part because most of us have been working together for a number of years and have sort of creative shorthand at this point, have spent a long time figuring out what is and isn't a counter story and so can kind of make decisions fairly quickly. But, you know, usually we start out with a kernel of an idea and run it by another person so that we don't gaslight ourselves into believing it, it isn't a story. You know, we're, we're really collaborative. We're a pretty collaborative team. So we might have a quick chat with the editors about whether something's got legs, but usually it's, is it a counter story? Okay. Then what? Well, who do we want to hear from about it? Okay. Then what? Are those people, people everyone hears from all the time about food issues? Okay, no, check. Do we have enough representation in the sources on this story? Okay, check. Now go out and do it. And invariably, our reporters will come back and say, this isn't exactly what we thought it was, or it's way bigger than we thought it was. And we'll make some choices in terms of direction and where to go with it. And then once they come back and file, our editing process is pretty intensive. It gets two pairs of eyes. It gets a, a lead editor who sees it through the structure finish line. And then a secondary editor who reads it for tone and for style. And, and so, you know, even on shorter turnaround stuff, unless it's really, really short turnaround, we're pretty deep in, in terms of seeing a story through from development to the page. So COVID has obviously been the big story of the last year. Well, there have been a lot of big stories this last year, but COVID was one that, that kind of affected everybody. Okay, all the other big stories did affect everybody, but this is the one I'm, I'm going to ask the question about. 
How did COVID affect your newsroom? How did it affect your stories, the things you were covering? Well, it changed everything kind of overnight, which is the cliche, but that was true for everyone in our industry. A year ago in March, we were in a newsroom, a physical space in Midtown Manhattan and left that space and have never been back to it. So by about June or so, we decided the newsroom would go fully remote period, which was good in a lot of ways. A, we all needed to get our lives back from a commuting hell that we'd been in for five or six years as the transit system was in crisis. So that was partially good. But also I had long wanted this to be a newsroom with regional bureaus because I think that's pretty important. And so it sort of just happened naturally. Some people went home to be with families. Some people went elsewhere and we were able to sort of break it up so that we had editing staff in different regions in on the West Coast, in LA, in the Mountain West, in Denver, one down in the South in North Carolina, and then to keep a couple of, a handful of editors here in New York. So in that way, it was good. It was kind of an overnight decision that we were going to cover nothing but the pandemic. I think that was true for newsrooms everywhere. But for us, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll be sort of figuring out when to dive in on something. I happened to have been in Mexico, like in a remote Mexican fishing village, trying to take this annual vacation with my parents. And we had rented a place that was no refunds. And we left, you know, like on March 9th or 10th to go there. And by the 11th, by the very next morning after I'd gotten there, it was completely obvious we had to be on this 24 seven. So I called up the staff from this wobbly, you know, internet line in this beach palapa that I was staying in. And I said, that's it. We're all going to go to work. And it was an incredibly intensive summer. I mean, I certainly don't have to tell anybody in the business that, but for us, what it did was it changed to some degree our rhythm because we had up until that point, we would be doing sort of, you know, somewhat longer form pieces. We had we had defied all convention for the first four or five years of or for three or four years of the publication in that we put lengthy text on the page without a bunch of bells and whistles and had kind of trained our readers to read long. So we were doing longer wonkier pieces where we really made big food systems connections for people kind of overnight that turned into a lot of service pieces about how to bring your takeout home and what you needed to know about whether COVID could survive on services. It was, how do I, how do I assess products at the farmer's market when I can't pick them up? It was, um, and then very quickly, of course, more morphed into kind of constant coverage of, of the crisis for essential workers who are at grocery stores and monitoring the failings in the meatpacking plants to protect its workers, the ongoing protection of, big business by Trump, which kept a lot of those facilities open and those workers exposed. So we did a lot of explanatory reporting, helping people understand that there weren't necessarily food shortages, but there were hiccups in a very, very complex supply chain that were aimed at kind of tamping down fear and anxiety. I mean, it was hugely, I have a, I feel like seeing empty grocery stores, store shelves is was hugely damaging to the American psyche because that's just not something we grapple with in this country. And we felt really obligated to help explain why that was happening, that it wasn't, it wasn't at all that we didn't have enough food here. It was 
a chance to reveal to people just how complex the supply chain is. And also I think to, to help people understand that what we're really good at in this country is making a ton of food very fast for very cheap because that's what we as consumers have demanded. But it also means that if there's a single chink in the supply chain, i.e. a farmer can't get his cow to slaughter on the day it's scheduled, it creates this huge economic crisis on both ends of the supply chain, both in terms of what you can find in your meat case at the grocery store and for a whole section of farmers who totally lose money on animals that can't go to slaughter, not to mention having to deal with, with animals that don't go to slaughter, i.e. how do we handle euthanasia of lots of, of animals? So it was all responsive reporting the way that it was for everybody in the business. I think you followed the stories where they were, you took the tips that came in. We benefited in some way from, from for-profit media's kind of instant demise overnight in that it freed up a whole bunch of people who were covering food and agriculture at other publications who did a lot of freelancing for us. And that was terrific in that we were able to get regional stories that we couldn't get because we couldn't field report. So that was helpful, but it was a real overhaul in going from kind of longer form, explanatory, deep features, deep investigations to just day-to-day ongoing crisis reporting coverage that, you know, unfolded at all hours of the day and night. How'd your staff handle that? Well, they came through. They were extraordinary. My managing editor every morning and I would get up and we, we had sort of it was akin for us to the to all of us being in some sort of a space capsule together, you know, hurtling out into space and somebody gets a rip in their space suit and starts to act weird and you don't know who it's going to be on any given day. And so we would we would get up in the morning and say to each other, how's your space suit? And, you know, as long as the response was still intact, we'd proceed. But I think it took a huge emotional toll on people because we were also at the time before some of us moved for those first three months from about March through June, we were also all still in New York and New York was the hotbed as we all know. So in addition to dealing with lines at our grocery stores and shortages and, you know, all of New York's infrastructure basically shutting down, we were also reporting on what people around us were experiencing. So I think it was draining and exhausting, um, but folks got through it. They did really good work and were innovative and quick on their feet and brave. And, you know, I commend them. I, they, did, they did meaningful reporting at a time when everybody wanted to basically go to pieces and kind of what <laughs> were going to pieces. It was a kind of um, a time of a lot of existential crises, I think, for all of us. You know, many of the journalists I've talked to about their publication's response to COVID and, and how their newsrooms changed and, you know, how many of them had been in, working in a central place and broken off into different ways and they became more independent and they, they figured out different ways of doing things. They sort of rose to the challenge and, and you know, the things you're talking about, you're giving these examples of of how, you know, you were doing it's maybe some different types of writing, but you're really doing the reporting that you were already doing, but through the lens of COVID. What was your reader's reaction to this sort of shift slightly in focus? Well, interestingly, it brought in a tsunami of new readers. And I think that was in part because they couldn't get accurate food information from maybe general news, which was covering 
things from a different perspective. And so some of them had very real questions like, is it safe to eat the frozen meat that I just bought? And, you know, was COVID in some way related to food or the food system? Those were real questions and they didn't seem to have anywhere else to go to find that information. So I think they relied on us pretty heavily. The other thing that happened was we kind of took our cue, as I said earlier, we took our cues from the tips that were coming in and the, and the people who were in touch with us. And one of the things that happened was that we got a lot of just letters and reader mail, people writing about what they were experiencing in their own eating life. And so we developed a series called Eating In, which allowed people of all stripes, non-writers and writers alike to do a 500 word micro essay about what they were experiencing as they were eating in isolation. And we launched it around Easter and Passover time. So we sort of started out with a, I don't know, a handful of essays. And I, we put out a call for those essays thinking we might get it, you know, maybe 10 or 20. We ended up getting hundreds and hundreds of them. And we ran the series the entire summer. I mean, it was just the kind of thing where you just, you couldn't shut it off because each individual tableau depicted this, you know, all of the threads of the pandemic, loss and missing connection and loss of ritual and loss of traditions and actual loss of human beings that people loved. And they were experiencing that through food and writing about it. And it created this kind of it widened the community of our readership. I'll say that. I think that's the best way to put it. And so it, I think it also gave people a sense that they could find a place at the counter where they wouldn't just need to read about how the meat supply chain got screwed up, but that they could also find a, you know, an elegant 500 word essay from someone just like them who was also deeply missing their mother's stew or had an empty seat at the table. So I think we, heard from readers more than we ever had in terms of just emails and notes and responses. You know, generally most of us hear from readers when they're unhappy with something and they broadcast it on Twitter, but this was so much more human and so much more intimate and so much closer to our readers than we usually get. So I think the response was strong. It was both, they came to us because they needed basic information, but they also came to us because they really needed to hear from other people who were experiencing what they were in their own homes. Yeah, because of the isolation, you know, the uniqueness of the situation. I mean, we're still in, you know, things with the vaccine rollout and everything, we're still in the pandemic. And, you know, I think we're sort of, looking forward and seeing the possibility that things may be different in a few months or, or so, what do you see, you know, where do you see the, you know, the counter heading now that you've had this experience of COVID, you know, how do you think it's changed your newsroom? How do you think it's going to change the types of stories or will it change the types of stories you're going to do in the coming months? Well, one thing I'll say is that we adapt, we did a lot of adapting. So it meant that, you know, both the urgency of the storytelling during the pandemic, the need that our community of readers had to get certain kinds of information made it so that we often just had to flip the form and make a quick decision that a, a story about an essential worker's experience at their Whole Foods as a grocery bagger was far better told by that person than as a reported story. So we did a bunch of as told to's or we did essays because that's what the community seemed to need at the time. And 
I think that that made us feel sort of less married to format in terms of reporting, that stories can look and sound and feel like all kinds of different things and that they they need to be driven by the human need that's at the center of that story. So in part, I think we became more flexible, which is good. We also got some grant money over the last six months to do a couple of major projects. One of them is focused on COVID recovery that allows me to dedicate a reporter, two reporters actually, to that for a whole year. That's really interesting because we're not technically in a recovery. But one of the things that I think we're super interested in as an organization is all of the de facto models that popped up because they had to, because there was emergency need for food. You know, American schools are a really good example. Over the summer, they became food distribution hubs by virtue purely of necessity. What's interesting about that is that it proves that we can provide food to the community using some of the existing infrastructure if there are people to do it and to repackage it and to repurpose it. So we'll be looking, I think, at a lot of those models and asking, how do we keep these around? How do they scale? Is it important that they scale? What is important? What will it cost? So I think we may be doing some solutions-focused journalism over the next six months. The other thing is that part of that grant money is going to fund a reporter to cover the movement toward justice for Black farmers and efforts at political redress. And that is the kind of storytelling that needs a sustained, dedicated reporter and a beat. And it is hard to spare staff in a newsroom of my size, which is 13, no, I'm sorry, 12 on the reporting side, on the editorial side, with two full-time staff writers, soon to be three, and a stable of freelancers. It's tough for me to send anybody into a beat and let them stay there for a long time. But that's what certain kinds of storytelling really require. So you'll also see from us ongoing storytelling about whether there is meaningful change for Black farmers who are owed, you know, all kinds of reparations in the form of land and money. And what else is happening in the farming community of color? I mean, there are innovations left and right all over the country that are the byproduct of you know, necessity and hard work, but that are getting a new spotlight because Congress has put this money toward their efforts. So it'll be an interesting and diverse year, though I we're interviewing for those COVID reporting fellows right now. And I've said to each of them, this could turn into another crisis response reporting job. We don't know. And there's a somewhat short window for meaningful change while we're waiting for 70% of the country to be vaccinated. There's some political will to make changes in some parts of the food system, but we don't have a ton of time to do that. And so there is some urgency to the work that we'll be doing over the next six or eight months, looking at what we can keep from the models that popped up over the last year and whether, you know, look, it's totally obvious that the restaurant industry was not a great place to work before the pandemic. It's an exceedingly not great place to work now. That industry is facing a labor shortage. Um, and that requires a cultural reckoning of sorts with 
our relationship to restaurants and the people who work there. And so I don't know if that industry goes back to what it was before without a whole workforce that has said, hey, we don't want to return to it as it was. So I think there's a lot to look at in terms of change. Well, it seems like, speaking of change, that that the counter and the counter staff adapted and changed a lot because it had to because of COVID like everybody else. And then it looks like that there's plenty of things on the horizon for you to step up to and adapt to and uh, continue to do the, the type of journalism that you're doing. Kate, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. It was really a pleasure. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.